So as we take up Acts chapter 3, I'm undertaking a tremendous endeavor to cover this whole chapter in one sermon. I know we tried this before at times successfully, and then other times we've tried just a few sections and not done it. But the, much of this is all tied together, and so we're going to see three different things. We're going to see the workers, we're going to see the wonder or wonders, and we're going to see the witnesses and see how these things unfold, or the witnessing really, and how it unfolds. The first thing I do want us to notice as we come to this, we know that we've already come past the day of Pentecost. We've come past the day where God has already uh, taken about 3,000 people and brought them to the church, added them to the body of Christ. And, and here now, we're in the days that are following that day of Pentecost and ongoing ministry. As, as we take this up, I want us to see this. It, it, it's not accidental that we see, I think, some good value in what is here, even in the introductory verses. It says this in, ver in verse 1. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, that is the ninth hour. Now, with woven within this are elements that are not so important to the real understanding of the theme, but I can give them to you anyways. The ninth hour is, was a traditional time, 3 o'clock p.m., where the Jews would gather at the temple for prayer. Traditionally, they're, they're, during different seasons, it was either two or three times. Is In the morning at sunrise would be the morning one. When they would do two, it would be morning. And then the ninth hour, 3 o'clock. When they, when they were in seasons uh, traditionally of doing three, it would also include sunset. Okay, but this was the pattern. This is where people would oft gather together uh, in the process of this. Whenever there's also poor people who are poor because they are unable to work and unable to move because they are lame or infirmed in some way, they would oft be put in a place like this where the generosity and contributions of the children of Israel could help out those in need. Even God had said it had been the plan and pattern among the children of Israel that there would be no poor and needy among them because they would meet one another's needs. That's, and, and here into this situation, we have Peter and John. One of the things I want us to, to notice, just as a simple glance here, is that there, there is... Uh, power in partners. What do I mean by that? Now, when we look into the scriptures, we might ask ourselves again, if we go back to the Old Testament, we see many times God raised up a prophet. And that prophet tragically was often alone. And he would declare the sins of the people. He would call them to pull, come out of their sin. And they would abuse him. They might imprison him, mistreat him. And it was very difficult. Oftentimes they felt exceedingly isolated and alone. Many of you are familiar with Elijah. And after God had given them that, hit, that tremendous victory over all the prophets of Baal and had called down fire from heaven, he ends up running away and calling out to God, I, only I alone am left of all the prophets. So alone, so isolated, um, facing those challenges. As we move forward to the New Testament, not clearly, not as a law requirement, but we do see a clear pattern that 
I think, has wisdom. If we look in the scriptures, for example, in Mark chapter 6, verse 7, this is where Jesus is sending out the twelve on a temporary ministry that he will send them out on. And it says this in Mark 6, 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. Later on, as we come to Luke 10, God, he's going to take 70 or 72, depending on the original transcript that you use. And it says this in Luke 10. After this time, the Lord appointed 72 others, and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every place where he himself was to go. Even uh, in Luke 19, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, and to the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village where you are entering and you will find a colt that no one has ever set on and untie it and bring it here. And they would go and get the colt. Then later on, Jesus would also send these very two Peter and John by two by two by themselves to go and to prepare for the Passover meal or the Lord's Supper. And here again, they seem they've come to the temple as two. It's, it, we even want to, if we go further than that, in Acts chapter 13, which we'll get to at some point in time, where God is really beginning what we, what we begin to see is that, that work of a, of a missionary endeavor, and Paul's going to go on his first missionary journey. It's not just Paul, is it? The Holy Spirit moves within that church and says, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas. And these two men go out. When later on, these two men have, them, have themselves a conflict, they end up separating and going different directions. And Barnabas goes with John Mark, and Paul goes with Silas. They did not, in, in separation, go off in isolation. There is always strength in having brothers and sisters around us. To encourage us in the hardship. To hold us accountable in, in, in our lives and in our patterns and in our practice. And, and here the, the two of them come forward. And I think that uh, there may be wisdom even in the future if we were to see these kinds of things. At times we send missionaries and we send church plans. How much more value is there if there can be a situation where there are two? Also, one of the practical privileges of there being two rather than one, if one goes out and God does many things, who do those people ascribe all their glory and praise to? Who do they appreciate? Who becomes lifted up? That guy. But if there's two of them speaking, teaching, serving, cooperating, then it's a lot harder for men to take the high place on the platform because there's two of them. It helps to curb the sense of pride. It helps to curb those human tendencies, which we all have. So if we do find ourselves isolated, we need to recognize that we, we need to be dependent upon God for strength. If we find ourselves alone in some service of ministry, we've got to make sure that we want to surround ourselves with God's people and we want to be humble 
and persevering. When you, when you fall down, if there's someone that's, that's there with you, they're able to help you, pick you up. When you're feeling weak, they're able to swap out and substitute and share and serve. There is something blessed about God's people working together. And that's why you see as you go through the book of Acts and as you move forward in the scriptures. That unlike uh, even the general structure and pattern of churches today. Which is so often the pastor and then the rest of the people on down from there. The scriptures don't have it that way. In each of the churches there were appointed a number of pastors, overseers. The scripture uses a lot of names for them, but almost we have no indication that any of the churches had a single man who was over them. But men working together. Uh, again, the, the picture often is this, because there is one that is over the church. Indeed, there's one who's over all the true churches. And that's Jesus Christ. He's the chief shepherd. He's the master of the sheep. But the, within the context. When there were big herds. It wasn't always just one shepherd. Who would look after them. Even now. I know most of you have not come across. Many sheep wandering around. But one of the blessed things about having been able to serve the Lord overseas is even now every time I go over there it's not uncommon for me to be driving out to the seminary campus to teach and I've got to stop while a herd of goat and sheep pass by and usually it's not just one shepherd if it's a big group there's two three one at the front one coming kind of midland to keep those guys from wandering off to the side one trailing behind so that any laggers and lingerers are brought along each serving their specific purpose we got christ the head who shows the way and leads all and we need multiple others coming alongside under shepherds under the masters leading who are out there cooperating but we see that more than that, when we look at these two in particular, these two are apostles. We've looked at this to, at, to some degree in the past. The apostles themselves were very unique. Even as reestablished those uniquely who had been with Christ, who had would receive their teaching from him. They were what we can call authorized ambassadors. So that we see that the, in these workers, there's power and partnership. And, the, and these men are authorized ambassadors. One of the ways we also see how they're authorized is the scripture says this powerful statement as, as they are engaging this man in verse 6 who is in need, who is crippled. This is silver and gold have I none, but what I have, I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. They are authorized ambassadors because they represent another. The message they give is not their own. He has given them the message that they then declare. Even as, even as Jesus only declared what the Father gave him, his authorized apostles only declare what he gave to them. Further, as they're 
carrying out this work, they are not expecting that somehow the power is coming from them. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Now you may be saying, well, why of Nazareth? Why are you saying that? Jesus, he was not the only Jesus by that first name who would have been alive in that time. The name in Hebrew was, uh, was Yoshea or Yoshua, which we would call Joshua, which was a, a, a relatively common name, but a rich name in its meaning, God saves, the God who saves. But here they say, give you what we can in the name of Rise up and walk. Now I want you to remember, when in John chapter, the gospel of John chapter 14 through 16, Jesus was giving some profound and powerful instruction to his apostles to prepare them for his departure and the ministry that they would have after he goes. And he tells to those apostles this in John 14, verse 13 and 14. He tells them of the, of the ministry that they will have, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And so what are they doing right now as there is this slain man? Do they think they have the power and ability to heal him? Who among us has that? But they know that Jesus told them that they, when they ask anything in his name for the glory of the Father, that he will do it. And they do make a declaration in Jesus' name. Further, in John 16, verse 22 and following, it says this. So also, you have sorrow now. He's talking to the to these apostles who are going to feel sorrow because he's going to die and not be with them anymore. And they're going to be confused as to what happens. Remember, some of his disciples, uh, the larger group that's that's accompanying the apostles, eventually when Jesus uh, dies, they begin to leave. Remember, after his resurrection, he meets a, a few of them on the road to Emmaus. And they're bemoaning, we thought he was the one, but uh, now he's dead. No, he was dead, and now he's alive again. Jesus who had met with them, and Jesus who had spoke with them, they rushed back and told the apostles, we've seen him, he's alive. But here again, you will have sorrow because he was going to die and they were going to be confused. Remember, even Thomas and the others, there's joy and disbelieving. Uh, Jesus appeared to us. And what does Thomas, who was not there on the first occasion, say? Nah, nah, no, he's dead. We saw him die. We saw him buried and the stone rolled in front. This is over. Until I see him and I touch him and I put my hand. I'm not going to believe it. Because it's just impossible. So they would feel sorrow. That, that thinking what has happened. What's going on. We don't understand. It says, but I will see you again. 
again. They didn't understand it until actually they did see him again. But you will have sorrow now. But I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take that joy from you. Because you will know that I have power over death. I have power over the grave. I have power over sin. There is salvation in Jesus. It says this in verse 23 of John 16. In that day, you... That is you who have sorrowed and you who will see me again. In that day, you will ask me nothing. Truly, I say, say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now, I've said these things to you in figures of speech, but the hours coming, I'll no longer speak with you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly what the Father has said. Verse 26, in that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say that uh, to you that I will on your behalf. So they will be able to ask the Father in the name of Jesus. They've been endowed with an extraordinary apostolic service as the foundation of the church in, in a manner that's um, um, broader than others. Again, looking at this, if you would, back in chapter 2, verse 43, it says this, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So in these early days in the book of Acts, and, and really extraordinarily through the apostles, they had that privilege of having been told by Jesus, you ask anything in my name, and it's happening. It's unlikely that if you and I meet a lame person or a, or a hospitalized person, that we can necessarily walk right up to them and accomplish this same thing, declare and taking them by the hand. But this was done in these days through the hands of the apostles, even as it was done through Christ, in order to establish and authenticate beyond any doubt, He is the Holy One of God. For the apostles, they are the sent ones of Christ. He has through them laid the foundation. They are the last ones who would speak with authority on behalf of Christ. Listen to them. To listen to them is to listen to him. And further, we see this. It establishes the praise of God. Uh, uh, their design is that they would, would glorify him. When, when you're talking about the name, in the name of Jesus. See, it's not simply using the phrase Jesus' name. The, to invoke his name, to refer to his name, was a bigger thing in this season and in this ancient society than it is now. To speak of someone's name, it speaks of their reputation it speaks of their character. It speaks of their position. It speaks of their authority. It communicates a lot about that individual. So to do it in Jesus' name, it's not that the name, the, the speaking of the name is healing them. But it is the person who bears that name. It is the weight of his being, the weight of his person, the weight of his authority that's accomplishing it. Indeed, the scripture reminds us and tells us things like this in, in Ephesians 1, 19 and following. 
And I'll begin speaking when it says Christ who he raised from the dead in verse 20. Verse 21 goes so far as to say this. Far above, raised him, seated him in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but in the age to come. When it says above every name that is named, it means above every person that has ever been. It's not merely the title that he's called by. But among all who have ever taken on the form of flesh, there is none so high, so mighty, so glorious as he there is no salvation in any other but through him that is Christ. Philippians says it this way in chapter 2, verse 9 and following. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him that is above every a, care, a, a reputation, a position, an authority. A power that no one else holds. He was declared to be the son of God with power. These are the things that, that speak to or are conveyed by his name. So it's, it, it's, it's not a, to say in the name of Jesus of Nazareth is not, was not some little magic mantra. You know, it wasn't a, a, a hocus pocus phrase, an abracadabra phrase. It wasn't this, this, the little magical sentence that you say that, that, that makes the power happen. It was not. These men speaking on behalf of Christ, serving on behalf of Christ, authorized to invoke his name with promised power to be delivered, stood there in the face of this lame man. And could confidently say, we got nothing we can give you. But there is someone who can do something for you. That one is Jesus. Jesus who was born. Jesus that everyone knows hails from Nazareth. This Jesus who was killed. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. Wow. And so from the... The workers where we see there's power and partners, we see that they're authorized ambassadors, we see that they establish an exaltation of the name. Let's look at the wonders. In this particular section, it tells us this in verse 2, a man lame from birth was being carried. Now there's a reason why it says lame from birth. Even there's times in, in, in Jesus' individual who was blind from birth and this is this was something that was really difficult sometimes if somebody became lame through an injury or an illness there might be the hope that it could be recovered or restored but when they're born that way particularly in this age in this era, with, with where medicine was, if someone was born with a congenital defect, it's, it's going to be there all the days of their life. Nothing can be done. Further, what I want us to notice in this that's so incredible is that this man, it, when he is healed 
by the power of Christ. They take him by the hand, raises him up. And, and the scripture says he stood on his feet immediately. Verse 7. They raised him up and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. You know, the, when, you, when you, we start to see the, the extreme nature of this miracle. Now, he'd never walked. Never, ever walked. And so, the, the necessary development of, of muscles to walk, the, under, the, the balance that we all develop, most of you may notice, when the little ones begin to walk... They fall with some frequency, right? Now, the nice thing is when little ones begin to walk and fall, they're already pretty low to the ground. And so a fall is not like if we fall. Um, here is this guy who's never stood. No, ne There's no rehab going on. You know, there's, there's no, uh, you know... In-home care that's going to come and, and put one foot in front of the other. And there's no instruction, nothing. So, all of this. Now, of course, he's observed people walking. So some of it is pretty obvious because he, his mind works well. But he is restored completely and immediately. Not even not a weakness, not a weariness, not, a, not a even working his way into it. Instantly, the man is leaping and walking. I mean, the fullness of this miracle. Now, one of the things that's so beautiful about this is there's a lot of individuals who roam around today, around the world, hosting events where they claim to do these same kinds of things. And I've been in some of these stadium performances uh, overseas as these men come in promising all these uh, things. But I can tell you this. No one with, with mangled legs and mangled ankles and shriveled bones are suddenly standing and walking and leaping. It's pretty amazing if you stand there. A lot of those people truly maimed and lame have come to those meetings and you, you you can see their legs that are not much thicker than fingers and you can see their their eyes glazed over and gray but none of those people are the ones who are going up on stage the people who are going up on stage and walking and leaping are commonly people who had already pretty reasonably stout looking legs you know, the, the blind are eyes already looked like they could. And so it, it becomes an uncertainty. What's going on here? What is the truth of this? What is the legitimacy of this? See, there can be no confusion. There can be no deceit here because it's someone who was since birth and everyone knew it. They had seen this man for years. They recognized him. He was commonly in that place because there's no other place that he could be for his life and sustenance. But what also is, is interesting about it is Christ did for this man through the ministry of the apostles what that man could not do for himself. 
And there is an interesting parallel between the fact that he was lame since birth and the spiritual condition of men. Remember, Jesus uh, establishes himself as, as the Christ, even proving himself to John the Baptist by saying, tell him what you see. The blind are seeing, the deaf are hearing, the lame are walking. He's doing these things. But here, this man was born lame. Is it fair? Is it right? He was born unable to walk. No matter how much he might desire to, he had not the ability to walk. Is that not right? Does anyone want to say that God is at fault for allowing that? He's an innocent baby. He didn't do anything wrong. That's not right. That's not fair. You can't, we don't say that. We know that God is sovereign over all. We actually come to the point where we recognize this. He does not owe any of us sight. He does not owe any of us sound. Have a right to walk or a before God. Among one another, we have a right to life. No one is to take another's life. But before God, it is in an entirely different circumstance, isn't it? We have no rights before he who is the potter and we are the clay. He holds all the rights in his hand. And this man is born absolutely unable. There's nothing that he could ever do that was going to make him walk. There was nothing anyone else could ever do... That was going to make him walk. Not unlike we who are born dead in our trespasses and sin. There's nothing we can ever do to set ourselves free from our sin. There's nothing anyone else can ever do to set us free from our sin. His only hope was that God in his mercy might restore him. Might give him the power that he did not have. And enable him to walk. That is our hope as well. As we're dead in our trespasses and sin. We are unable of ourselves to come. To know. To follow. Until the glory of the name of Christ. As in this day. In the name of Christ. Rise up and walk. And how Christ in effect, through the gospel says, in my name, rise up and follow me. It's powerful. Men in absolute. It's also interesting when, when I note this. Because the other thing about it is this man, as he's sitting there and they're entering. Is he asking for healing? Is he expecting healing? He, what he thinks, what he wants, what he needs, what he values, what he's given himself to is something else. God is pleased at many times to meet us when we don't even know the need that we have. It's not that we knew him. It's not that we were longing for him. It's not that we were seeking to him. He reveals to us, this is your greater need beyond these things. And for this greater need... Only one who can deal with it. 
And so there's this interesting parallels. He wasn't seeking, but he, he was met by Jesus with more than merely possible. He didn't say, in the name of Jesus, if you want, if you will just believe, then you will walk. No, he says what? In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And the Spirit of God, through the power of God, granted this man that he believed. That he responded in faith. And we're going to see more of that in a moment. So this was an amazing wonder. Not unlike the wonders that were being spoken of in verse 43 of chapter 2. It says many wonders and signs. So this is just one example of the wonders and signs. And verse 43 of chapter 2 also said, And awe came upon everyone. Or further down in verse 10 of chapter 3, it says, And they were, this is all the people gathered together who recognized him. They were filled with wonder and amazement. So we see really two kinds of wonder here. One is the amazing wonder. The healing and restoration took place. The other is not the amazing wonder, but that the people themselves are amazed with. How can this happen? We don't understand. There, there, there's no way that this makes sense. Such is the power of God that defies all of human expectation. Even, but it, it, this isn't surprising because it's fulfilling what the scripture tells us indeed would happen. In Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, it says this prophetically. Then the eyes of the blind will be open. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then shall the lame leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For the waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And don't ever forget this. When they had lowered that, that man who was also lame through those roof slats. Moving those so that he came down for Jesus to heal him. Because they couldn't approach him from the crowd. We remember what Jesus did in that occasion. He gave an extraordinary lesson that the demonstration of his power over the flesh was simply a picture. It was to make known or to make manifest the greater power that was his. Because when they lowered that man, do you remember what Jesus said to that man? He looked at him and he said, your sins are forgiven. Jesus had for that lame man, uh, again, I'll take it to another level. For this lame man, uh, he thought he needed money. But a better thing for him was that he would be able to walk. A greater need was met. This particular man who they lowered to receive healing, they thought that was his greatest need. But it was not. Beyond the financial needs... Beyond the physical needs of men are the real spiritual part of it all. And so Jesus looked at this man and said, and you know what? That man was still laying on his mat. But he had received in that moment all he ever needed. <laughs> Even if he would have remained on that mat for the rest of his days... 
he had received that which was most beneficial, most necessary, most glorious. But Jesus says, so, who is he to say he will forgive sin? They began muttering to themselves. Only God can forgive sin, which is exactly the point. Jesus is God, the very Son of God, become man. The God-man, like no other ever has been or ever will be. And so he tells them, so that you will know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sin. He turned to that man and said, rise up, take up your mat, and go home. And what did that man do? Rose up, took his mat, and headed home. Indicating Jesus not simply can heal the body, but forgives sin. The body, we get caught up in the body. The body, Jesus indicates, that's not the most important thing. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck that thing out. It's better to go into the kingdom of heaven with one eye than, than to be thrown out. If your right, left, right hand causes you to sin, cut off your hand. The, your eye and your hand, your physical body is not the most important thing. It's where you're at with relation to God. And where all men are at with relation to God is in sin. And absolutely born in sin like this man was born lame. Born unable to help and save themselves. Born unable to be helped and saved by anyone except Christ. And here in the name of Christ. By his person that man was healed. Of Christ and by the power of Christ salvation comes to men. Such an incredible parallel that moves us to amazement. But I want us to now move on to the last thought here, and this is the witnesses. After they have been used of God to heal this man, uh, a crowd comes together. And I, and I love this because here is the, the clear pattern. They use gathered occasions as gospel opportunities. Not unlike what, what our brother Jerry is out doing right now today in New Orleans. He knows that there's a, a, a large group of people who are coming down to New Orleans for this big football game as they were yesterday in Baton Rouge. One of the most attended football games in Baton Rouge of the season. That did not work out well for those in Baton Rouge. But uh, a gathering group, a gathering occasion... It's a gospel opportunity. And he and, and some other friends went down to that place. And they're out there right now making Christ known. Many of those people who are going to that football game, do they think they know, need Christ? Do they, are they aware that their greatest need is the forgiveness of sin and the spiritual life that is only in Christ? Do they know this? They don't. They're un, like this man, they're unaware of their greater need. Like this man, they're unable to help themselves. But Christ is able where man is not. And we pray and trust that, that God may be pleased through the gospel that's preached today. To make known to many what their true needs are. And to make known to many Christ who alone meets them with salvation and forgiveness and hope. All right. So they. As we quickly go through this, we just see a few things begin to unfold from verse 11 and following. I love the way it begins because they start with this in verse 11. 
While they clung to them, people were utterly astounded and ran together. And it says this in verse 12. And when Peter saw, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though through our own power or piety, we have made him walk? Step one, we are nothing. (laughs) We didn't do this. We can't do this. We're not the important ones. We're not the pious ones. We're not the powerful ones. We are not your answer. We're not your solution. It's another. It's a Christ. We're just serving him. We're just making him known. We're just speaking of him. We are nothing. Oh, that men would know that. Right. I mean, one of the things that's always uh, and, and it's not always the case, but one of the things that at least has, has laid question to my heart through the years is, is there's many ministries that exist out there in the world. Correct. But. You know, uh, again, I'm going to use a random name so that I'm not pointing at anybody, but if the sign out in front of this church, for example, said. John Smith Baptist Church. Would that be a little weird? Yeah. Or John Smith wants to be involved in ministry and evangelism. So he founds johnsmithministries.org. Or whatever it may be. And, and, and it's like, so who, who's given to? Who's the emphasis focusing on? attention of the individual so if you see somebody has attached their name to a ministry they may be just following a pattern they saw in somebody else and it doesn't necessarily speak ill of them but some have codified it in their name because it has become about them and because they want to be known And what's sad is sometimes on these occasions and on these conferences and on these crusades, the name of that man is bigger on banners and more commonly on the lips of people than the name of Christ. What has happened? Is it it about Christian celebrityism? Or is it about Christ? These men from, the, from step one, the first thing they do is, yeah, don't, don't look at us like we did anything. We, we are nothing. We've got no power. They're not even claiming their own righteousness. We are nothing. Then immediately they turn as they are nothing. You know who is everything? God. They, they don't spend their time even. This is what can also happen. A lot of, you know, when too much time is spent in unfolding uh, self-deprecation. You know, there are some who have titled that, oh, that's humble pride. You know, so proud of their humility. Let me boast in the fact that I am absolutely nothing, but I am absolutely nothing better than More than, no, 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 none of that. After saying we're nothing, done talking about themselves, on to what really matters, talking about God and talking about Christ. Right there from verse 12, we're nothing. We haven't accomplished this. Verse 13, the God of Abraham. 
And I like the way that it's done here. Unlike the common way in the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here the emphasis is to get their attention to God, not Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he's, he's been all over redundant here. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. So who got mentioned every time? Abraham mentioned once, Jacob once, Isaac once, our fathers once. Who got mentioned four times in there? God. So he gets the focus, the foundation, the emphasis. This is what gospel preaching and gospel presentation does. It takes the attention off of the instruments of service and takes it to he who wields the power and works his purposes to God. And then, of course, God has worked and brought about his salvation, not randomly, but by his power through the person of his son. So it goes to God and then, and then leads to Christ. Because what happens right there? Glorified his servant, Jesus. I mean, I like this. You know what he's done? He, he, he's not beat around the bush. You know what he's also not done? What so many people think is necessary today. Let me tell you a story. There was once a man who went off to war. Blah, 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 blah. And ten minutes later, you, you try to get people weepy and soft-hearted through this emotional story. And then you slip a little Jesus in there. Ha-ha. While you're sensitive. No, no, no. God doesn't need that. We don't need... It's not about uh, this man and this story and this. It's about God is in Christ. Here we go. Begins to unpack it so powerfully, and and begins to to speak of this Jesus. It speaks of as you as you read through there, his divinity, that he is the Son of God, that he is the righteous one, the holy one. His death, uh, his deliverance by God and by them. And that he is the deliverer, that he's the, he, he's the author of life, it says in here. So, of his divinity, that he was raised from the dead. So, it unpacks the person, the power, and the work of Christ. But he, you know what else he doesn't back away from? In verse 13 and 15, men sin. This, this one you asked for a murderer to be released instead of this perfect and holy one. You, verse 15, you killed him. God, Christ, his excellencies, his works, his divinity, his perfections. You sin and estranged. But then also the power that is granted by God. Through faith in Christ. I want us to see verse 16. I want to just uh, focus on this. and we'll the, Then the rest of it unpacks pretty quickly. Look at verse 16 with me. Because it is a very powerful verse. That we don't always look at close enough. By his name. That's again not just the stating of his name. But by his person. His power. His character. His work. His accomplishment. His authority. By Christ. By faith in Christ and all that he is, this man has been made strong, whom you see and know. And listen, and the faith that is through Christ has given this man perfect health 
thing that most of us are not used to. We are very commonly exposed to this idea. You must have faith in Christ. But where does this faith come from? Ephesians 2.8, we remember it's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. This tells us not only is our faith in Christ, but that we have faith in Christ has come to us through Christ. The word there in the Greek is dia, faith by means of, through the working of Christ. It is because of Christ's power that I have faith. And because of his power working faith in me, I believe. Glorious. Confusing a little bit, but it just drops us to our knees and say, God, thank you. I don't even, I can't even take credit for putting my faith in you. Thank you for putting faith in me that I believe in Christ. I mean, that's what, that's what the text here says in a, in a way that confuses me. It confuses so many that they just read past it. I don't know what that means. I'm not going to even think about it. But the faith that is through Christ has given the man this perfect help that you see in the presence of all. Now, he tells them, God has been merciful to you because you were ignorant and overlooked it. Because when they put the Son of Christ to death, what, the Son of God to death, what should have happened? Crushed. But God was patient with them and did not bring them yet to, to the final judgment in that moment. Remember this. Uh, this is one of the reasons why. So Jesus, object of our faith. Actually, if you look this up in Robertson's word picture dictionary that explains these words it says this concerning the phrase here that jesus is both the object of our faith and the source of our faith which shouldn't surprise us because most of us are familiar with what it says in hebrews 12 2 looking to jesus the author and finisher of our faith the esv says the pioneer of our faith. Hebrews 2.10 says it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. He goes on through here in verse 18 to establish that Jesus is the Christ. And we know this is true on the basis of prophecies that are foretold. He roots it in the scriptures. All gospel presentations are rooted in the scriptures. He speaks of the coming of Christ. And again roots it in the prophecies of the scriptures. Unfolding it. He calls them in this passage. As a result of these things. To repent. That their sins may be blotted out. He, they're, they're told also. In verse 22. Of the, of the sovereign purposes. And that Christ is ultimately the dividing line. In Deuteronomy 18. Moses prophesies that there is a prophet like him that is going to arise, that everyone must listen to. And here's the reality. The scriptures lay this out in verse 22 in an undeniable fashion. And this brings our, our, our uh, sermon to an end. It says this. And Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him. 
whatever he tells you. Whatever he says. Well, I've never heard that before. It doesn't matter. He said it. You believe it. He gives instruction. You follow that instruction. He gives command. You follow that command. He gives teaching. You believe that teaching. And verse 23. It shall be that every soul that does not listen to that prophet. That does not listen to Christ and the testimony of Christ. Shall be destroyed from among the people. That's it. How people understand and relate to Jesus determines everything. Those who do not hear and listen to him, they would be cut off, destroyed, utterly rooted out from among his people. And the only hope for any is in Christ. There is no other. As the scripture says, he is the one who is the prophet that fulfilled the prophecy of Moses. He is the one, according to Galatians, who is the one that fulfilled the offspring of Abraham. He is the one who sits on the throne of David. He is exalted above all, above every other name. So in this passage, we saw the workers, how they went out two by two in the power of God, authorized representatives, exalting the name of Christ. We saw the wonders which no man could work and which were accomplished not by the of man. Men were helpless. Even the man did not know his true need uh, or his deeper need. And yet God brought it about. And the people were, were filled with amazement and wonder. And we see the witnessing. And the witnessing is that the witness isn't worth a thing. <laughs> but God is everything. Christ has manifest the power and authority of God. And no other. And everyone's clearly, distinctly evidenced by how they relate to this one, Jesus Christ. And so what, because that is true, what ought we to do? Be workers. Find people to work with. Go out and make that gospel known. Trust that God will continue to unfold his purposes. God continues at times to, to work wonders and to work, work powers and to meet people at their physical needs and to meet people, more importantly, at their spiritual needs. Thirdly, make known that gospel. When there are occasions, when there are gathered uh, groups, what a gospel occasion that that affords. Let us be a people who have that boldness to make Christ known. Because apart from Christ, this man would not be healed. Apart from Christ, there is no salvation. And if they do not, if any do not hear and obey the words of Christ, they're utterly cut off. There is no reconciliation apart from the cross of Christ. There is no hope for man. Praise God if he has revealed such to us. In revealing it to us, it's that we might make it known to others. So that Christ, by his power, might save them. Let's pray.